You're listening to audio from the Town Center campus of CA Church, located in downtown Coquitlam. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Uh, Guys, we've been walking through the gospel of Mark, love preaching through uh, scripture, love walking through uh, the gospel. Today we find ourselves at uh, Mark chapter 8, and we're going to start at verse 27. And if you've been with us or you've been checking it out online, listening to the podcast, um, Mark is out to call us to... um, Uh, to completely give up everything as a disciple of Jesus and to really question what that means. To to question, um, is it going to be easy to follow Jesus or is it going to be difficult? Is it something I just need to have head knowledge or do I have to give up something to follow Jesus? And so throughout the Gospel of Mark, uh, Jesus has been proclaiming that he is bringing in the kingdom of God and it might not be what you expect. And when it comes to the first century understanding of who God was going to send as a Messiah, and we'll unpack that word a little bit later, there was no shortage of opinions on what a Messiah ought to be. Uh, He would be a healer. He would bring healing to Israel. He would reveal God's powerful hand. He would be a deliverer. He would forgive the past sins of Israel. He He would follow tradition perfectly. He would be really, and not just the laws of, that, that God laid out in the Old Testament, but also all the traditions that the elders of Israel had come up with. He would be perfect at following them. He wouldn't hang out with sinners, tell you that much. He wouldn't, say, he wouldn't hang out with those who are ceremonially unclean. The Messiah wouldn't do that. So every group, whether it was political, philosophical, uh, ideological, they all had a different idea. Very often, the way, even the way that we come into church, we have different ideas of who Jesus ought to be, what worship ought to look like, how the pastor ought to dress. We all have different ideas. It was the same for the Messiah. They all had different ideas of when God's Messiah showed up, what he would look like. And that is why Jesus asked a very important question in the text that we're going to look at today. Let me press pause for a second. How many of you, by show of hands, this is like a complete pause and off the message. How many of you, by show of hands, actually use the notes that are on on church.info. Okay, so three or four. Okay. That, oh, someone's on them right now. That's helpful. Thank you very much. Now you're wondering, where's that going? Don't worry, you'll see. Uh, guys, this was an important question. Who is Jesus? Or what is the Messiah going to look like? It was an important question for Jesus' disciples, and it's important for you and I because of this. What we believe about Jesus' identity will either strengthen or diminish our resolve to follow him. What we believe about Jesus' identity will either strengthen or diminish our resolve to follow him. I was in a a Christian bookstore yesterday. There's not a lot of them that exist anymore. Probably, you can probably guess the, the town I was in that I was actually able to walk into a Christian bookstore. Yes, it was Abbotsford. And what I'm, <laughs> what I'm amazed at is that Jesus is the answer to so many questions that no one in the New Testament was actually trying to push Jesus as. I didn't know that Jesus could teach you how to be a better CEO, how you could be a better athlete. There's books to teach you how to be a better athlete, how to have a better diet. Jesus can show you the answers to all of these things. So what do you believe about, is he, is he going to help you do your job better? Is he going to help you be a better father, a better mother? Help you be a better child, better teenager, better student? Because whatever you believe about him, that will determine, or that will determine how strong our, our resolve will be to follow him. It's a question that Jesus poses to his disciples in Mark chapter 8, 
verse 27. We're going to read from Mark chapter 8, verse 27, verse down to verse 38, sort of the end. I'm going to invite you to stand if you're able. If you've been chasing after kids through worship, just stay seated. Don't even worry about it. The word of God to us this morning. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he, meaning Jesus, strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and, he, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And notice, it's not a parable. He said it plainly. No more explanation is needed. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. By turning and see, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus, thank you that you are a God who reveals himself to us, not only through creation that causes us when we get up in the morning to be face to face with our creator. Thank you that not only did you inspire scripture so that we could understand and be given instruction for wise living in light of the God of all creation. But thank you, as the writer of Hebrews says, that you ultimately have revealed yourself through your son, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the living, breathing, speaking God in human flesh. I pray you would chisel away at us this morning as we speak of who you are, Jesus, and what it means to declare the truth that you are the Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, guys, you can take a seat. We have, uh, we have two sections here. We have verses 27 through to 30, and then 31 through to 38. But it, it doesn't take much to recognize that they are related to each other. We have two questions about who Jesus is. The first is, we have, what is Jesus' identity? And second, we have the struggle with what Jesus' identity means for Jesus' mission and for the mission of all those who follow him. Those are the two things that are being discussed. Who is Jesus and what does that mean for Jesus and what does it mean for us? Because what we believe about Jesus' identity will either strengthen or diminish our resolve to follow him. So what is Jesus' identity? What titles do, do, do you notice here? Go ahead and call them out. What are the, the, the titles that the disciples give him? What do people believe? Who do people believe he is? Elijah. What, can anyone think of any reasons why they might think that Jesus was Elijah? Either metaphorically or actually a reincarnation of Elijah. 
Because he saw no death, absolutely. In, uh, in 2 Kings 2, Elijah is taken up in a fiery chariot, right? So it was often believed that he would return one day as a Messiah figure. Absolutely, Calvin, that's right. Well, Elijah pulled off a lot of miracles. He pulled off a lot of miracles that were actually similar to the miracles that Jesus did. Feeding people out of nothing. Healing people. Bringing people back from the dead. These were all things that Elijah did. They also say he's John the Baptist. This is kind of a strange one, isn't it? Because weren't they hanging out at the same time? Well, possibly without the day of social media, timelines maybe got a little confused. But here we have Jesus hanging out in the same area as John the Baptist had been walking around, performing miracles, um, proclaiming a kingdom, the kingdom of God, just like John the Baptist had been doing. They say, speaking of Elijah as well, another one of the big thoughts that, that the people of Israel had came out of Malachi, the prophet Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 to 6. I think we have that up there. He said, behold, this is God speaking through Malachi. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will return, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So there's this Messiah figure idea of Elijah. Now, some people have connected that to John, and some people have just connected it to God doing a great move. So it's a Messiah-like figure. Some people just say, you're a prophet. Look at all the things you're doing. You keep proclaiming God's word. You're speaking on behalf of God to us. That is a prophet thing. And we haven't seen that for 400 years. The only one we've seen is John. So maybe you're the same dude or maybe you're someone else. And then Peter steps forward. Who do you say I am? And Peter's like, I know. I know this one. You are the Christ. And I just, I know Peter. Peter's always looking for recognition. And I just imagine he's just waiting for his... That's right, Peter, gold star. Well done. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. The, the Christ and Messiah uh, and, and Messiah equivalents, okay? Christ means the anointed one. The Messiah means the anointed one. Christ comes from Christos, the, the Greek idea that you are the one that God has chosen and sent to bring in his kingdom. You are the one spoken of by the prophets. Now, does anything strike you about right after Peter's answer? There is no gold star. Jesus doesn't even say anything about that. He's just like, good job. He doesn't pat him on the head. Doesn't do anything for him. No gold, nothing. He just says, that's good, Peter. Keep it to yourself. <laughs> Shouldn't we be proclaiming this? Why does Jesus throughout this gospel continue to say, keep it quiet. Keep it to yourself. Maybe Jesus doesn't do his best work in a big crowd. Maybe Jesus doesn't do his best work in a big movement where we push to take over with power. Maybe what Jesus had to do and wants to do does not come with all the pomp and the power that most believe should accompany the Messiah. And this is where we get to the mission of God through Jesus. What is Jesus' mission? When Jews heard the word Messiah or the Christ, they thought a war was coming. They thought that wherever the Jews were in trouble, the Messiah was coming with the power and the arm of God and the sword of God to bring judgment and delivery. A war would be coming. And we see this with Peter later on in, in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 18, verse 10. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the priests and the, 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 the helpers of the priests come to get Jesus to take him to court. And what does Peter do? He pulls out a sword and let, let's, let's do this thing. When you're a jet, he's just ready to fight. 
And Jesus wants to make it very clear. Do not get the word out that I am the Christ. It will only get in the way of what I have come to do. I am doing something very subversive to what the world considers a power move. And for Peter, this must have sounded like cuckoo bananas talk. (laughs) Do not tell anyone. Don't tell anyone that the Messiah, that the people of Israel have been waiting for, for over a millennium, don't, don't mention that he's here. And there's a reason for that, because I'm not the Christ you've been expecting. I'm not coming in the kind of power you're expecting. I am an unexpected king with an unexpected kingdom. And Peter, you need to get in line. In verse 31, he calls himself the Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man, if you, if you, you hear that on its, on its own, at first glance, it, it appears like, like he's kind of putting himself down. It's, it seems like a diminishing rank to say, oh, I'm just the Son of Man. But actually, it actually enhances Jesus' credentials for anyone who knows their Old Testament and specifically knows Daniel. In the book of Daniel, Daniel, which was written during a time of, of exile for the people of Israel in Babylon, calling out for delivery, and God puts his spirit on Daniel to offer hope to the people of Israel in exile. And in Daniel 7, verse 13, it says, And behold, this is his vision, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So in the book of Daniel, written in the midst of the the 6th century, Daniel has this vision of someone, he said, looks like a son of man, just looks like a, a normal dude. But he is so much more. He has, he has the favor of the eternal God, the ancient of days. He will have power and authority over all of creation and a kingdom that will not end. Get that. He didn't need to take it. Peter, Peter, I don't need to take a kingdom. I've already been given everything. I already have dominion over everything. Peter, we don't need to take this with a sword. We don't need to take this with a crowd. It's already been given to me from the highest authority. By Jesus' day, the title Son of Man signified a a Messiah that everyone was waiting for. When Jesus used it, he was making a significant claim. He was not belittling himself. Jesus then says in verse 31, he says, Listen, the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, be killed, and rise again. He must suffer. The the word must in that sentence in the Greek, it, it... clarifies everything else that must happen. So he must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be killed. He must rise again. And this is important. It does not say, Peter, by the way, this is going to happen. Peter, there's a good chance when we go to Jerusalem, this kind of stuff is going to... No, no, no. He says, it must happen. This is why I'm here. This has to happen. This is part of what God is doing. This is what my, the dominion that I was given by the Ancient of Days, this is what it looks like. I must suffer and be rejected and be killed and be resurrected. It is necessary that I do this. So this is the third question we struggle with and we walk with this morning. Why was it necessary that Jesus must suffer and die? And not only suffer and die, but be raised. I guarantee Peter was wondering, why? Why is that what the power of God is going to do? Why, when you've been given all this authority, and you you obviously have the power, I've seen you do miracles, you have authority over religious leaders, 
Why is this the way you're going to do it? And I have for you this morning a 3D answer. It's not two-dimensional, it's not one-dimensional. It's a 3D answer. You know why? Because I'm a pastor and I like alliteration. (laughs) Jesus had to die in order to display love, destroy sin, and declare life. That's right. to display his love, to destroy sin and declare life. He needed, Jesus needed to display, he must display a radical, a radically vulnerable love. Why? Because you and I naturally settle for fake love. Humanity naturally settles for (laughs) sub-love. If there is Reciprocity, if it's going to be safe, then I will give my love. It's not naturally a vulnerable love. It's a non-vulnerable so that we can escape if necessary kind of love. That's how we naturally love as human. But true love is self-emptying. That's what Jesus is showing us. And that's what we see in the gospel. True love is completely self-emptying. It loves regardless of whether the other is meeting your need. Is that not the gospel? That Jesus displays a love of complete vulnerability and radical selflessness regardless of whether we respond as we ought to. It is radically vulnerable. The dilemma we find ourselves in is, as humans is that we all desperately want radically vulnerable love, but we're all unable to offer it. That puts us in a dilemma. All of my love... I'm just going to, my wife's not in here. All of my love that I offer my wife, it has extra motives. It's base, but it's true. I would, like to, I would like to think of the deepest level when I buy flowers that I just want to give my wife flowers. But at the least, I want to kiss. When I leave the house and I say, I love you, honey, and I'm heading out, if I don't hear it before that door closes, I love you too, honey, then I'm opening that door again. Go, What? What was that? That is our natural default, to give love when we understand that it's going to come back. And if it's not coming back at the, same, at the same speed that we're giving it, it's very hard for us to love. It's a natural default that we often invest our love where we believe there's going to be a good return on our love. What the human heart needs is a love that is offered by someone who needs nothing from us. What the human heart needs is a love that is offered by someone who needs something, that does not require anything from us to complete them. Is that not the language of the rom-com of the day? You complete me. Okay, that's not even of the day. That's like two, two decades ago now, but the heart is still the same. You, you, I, I need you to be a full person. I need you to affirm me in order for me to be a full person, someone to love us for our sake. That, that kind of love would, would, would assure us of value. If we're offered a love that requires nothing back from us, that assures us of value. Many of us would, would share the sentiment of a, a young Christian woman who wrote this. I think I have it on the screen. A major issue in my life has been people-pleasing. I needed approval to be loved, admired, accepted, but for the first time I was able to see how important it was that I identified with Christ, and his love has enabled me to set up emotional boundaries with people that I never could before. This has enabled me to love my friends and family for who they are and not seek more from them, because I can find whatever is lacking in Christ. 
It's been a huge relief to finally feel free enough to love people and know that in Christ, I am safe and protected. When we are trying to find ourselves in others, who are trying to find themselves in others, who are trying to find themselves in others, we cannot be fully known and accepted. I make a horrible savior for my wife. She makes a horrible savior for me. Jesus is really good at being our savior. He's really good. And the reason he's so good at it is because he has a radically vulnerable, selfless love that he offers us. With me, there'll always be a catch. With Jesus, there's no catch. And because of that, the love of Jesus empowers us to need less from others and to vulnerably love others more. When we're not trying to seek full love from those around us, when we're not trying to be fully satisfied and accepted by those around us, we can then offer love that we can't offer otherwise. One of the reasons Jesus had to die was to satisfy the hunger in us for a complete, untainted, accepting love. You want to know what love looks like? Look to the cross. He went there for you. He knows you by name. You were on his mind. That is the love of Jesus for each of us. But there was also a need to destroy the power of sin over us, which often weighs us down and keeps us from loving. Sin always entails a penalty. Sin always entails a penalty. We do not need scripture to tell us that when we are sinned against, there's a desire for retribution. Did anyone get cut off today or this week? There is a desire for retribution. Even if it's a, I'm sorry, my mistake, then there's some, some, that's a payback. We have known that this is true of our lives since we were young. And for those of us who had siblings, who took our spot on the couch or took the toy that I was just about to use or punch. Okay, these are all personal stories. <laughs> but we cry out for justice. Whenever a child says, mom, he did this or to the teacher, he took the, what is that? That is a call out for justice to happen. We want some sort of retribution. Somebody needs to pay. When you've been syndicate, you want, you want payment. Now imagine your car is parked out here. You're not in the car. You're not driving. Some, someone comes by and nicks your car. You have a few options. Imagine there's no insurance. You have a few options. You can say to that person, I'm going to find out how much this costs, and you're going to pay for it. And if they say yes, you'll feel like justice has been taken care of. If they don't, you'll feel like injustice has happened. Or you can approach that person and say, don't worry about it. I'm not giving you a moral choice here. I'm just saying, you could just say, I'll take care of it. Did the payment disappear? No. Someone's still paying for it. You just paid for it. You absorbed the cost. That's the cross. It's one thing when it's just something physical involved. You can just pay for it. You can absorb the cross. That's fine. I'll cover it. That's fine. Now, what if someone robs you of something else? What if someone robs you of an opportunity? What if someone robs you of happiness? What if someone robs you of justice, reputation at school or at work or in the church? What if someone robs you of reputation? They've made you suffer somehow. It's the same thing. A debt has been incurred. How do we deal with that? You can seek retribution. 
You can seek payment, and how would we do that? Well, we would seek to ruin their reputation. That would be justice, wouldn't it? We would seek to take away some of their happiness. We can hope and we can do what we can to make sure that they suffer something as well, and then we feel like somehow we've got the scales balanced. The problem is, have you ever done that? This has happened to me when I've cut someone off by accident, so then they speed up, get in front of me, and hit the brakes. As though somehow cosmically, <laughs> that's balanced the scales. No one in here would ever do that. It's people out there that do that kind of stuff. <laughs> the problem is, is that when we do that, we become the very thing that we're indebted, <laughs> that's indebted to us. We become like it. So we're not fixing it. Evil wins in that case. Now, if you let them get away with it, does that feel good? No, it hurts. When we absorb someone else's mistake and say that's fine, it doesn't feel good. It hurts. When you, when you let it go and you say, I, I, just leave it. There's actually something we feel in our stomach that doesn't feel right. When we say, I, I forgive you, who suffers when you just say, I forgive you? You suffer because you just absorbed it without justice happening. You absorbed the debt. When we forgive someone, it doesn't vanish. It's absorbed. We, we just paid for it. That's what the cross is. That is the suffering of Christ. That is the debt that he must pay, why he must suffer to take care of our debt so that we don't have to pay it. It doesn't just go away. He absorbed it into his body. That's what the gospel tells us. That's why Paul says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Guilt cannot be dealt with unless someone pays for it. So, so Peter, Jesus is saying, you can't hold me back from this work. We, we can't go with the agenda that you want. This is why I came. This is important work. This is the work that no political might can gain. This is a work that, that influence can't accomplish. To absorb humanity's sin has to be done subversively and in humility and without power as you judge power. The third reason that Jesus must do all these things is declare life over death. And this is related to the previous. There's a reason that a, a life sacrifice has always been considered the most powerful display of love. John 15 verse 13 says, greater love has no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends. Why? Because it's always been throughout centuries the great unknown. What happens after death? We don't know. It's the last uncertain great adventure. So in Jesus' death, we see his display of love, but also a declaration that even death does not have the last say anymore. The great tool of all dictators, the great tool of all political regimes the greatest tool they had was to take your life. It's always been that way. It's still that way today for many who claim to align their lives with Jesus. It's always been the great tool. That's why, that's why early Christians drove, and again, Christians today in many parts of the world, drove the governments crazy. Because the only tool, the strongest tool that governments had, that political powers had, didn't work against Christians. Paul, Paul loved to talk about that. Oh, you're going to kill me? I get to go be with Jesus? All right. Okay, no, we're just going to make you suffer. Oh, to suffer. So I, 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 I'm more attached with the sufferings of Christ. Thank you so much. What do we do with this guy? But the greatest threat of the curse on creation ends with the death and resurrection 
of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus must, the very power of death, the power that can be held over all of humanity because of the curse is done away with because Jesus went to the cross. It's why the mighty powers throughout history have not been able to snuff out the church. Death has lost its sting. It no longer is an effective tool as, as Paul wrote and Paul knew in 1 Corinthians, when the perishable puts on the imperishable at the resurrection, at the death, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You, you've got nothing anymore because Jesus has taken the last tool that any regime can hold over a Christian and has disarmed them. That's why Christians mourn the death of loved ones, but we do not mourn without hope. Paul writes again in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, dead, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So why is Jesus going to the cross? Why must he suffer? Why must he be killed? Why must he be resurrected so that we can have hope? Hope like no other hope. So Peter when Jesus says, get behind me, and he associates Peter with Jesus, he's saying, Peter, see, Satan would have loved a power agenda. Go for it. He'd love to see that. But coming in submersive, subversive, submersive, subversive, no one's going to see that coming. So Peter, get in line. Don't, don't, don't have the same mindset as the devil. You remember the temptations of Jesus were all about him taking power too early. I'll give you all this stuff. Uh, I was already given all this stuff. I already own all this stuff. Thank you very much, Mr. Satan. I don't need it. The Ancient of Days gave it to me a long time ago. So Peter, Brad, anyone who, who claims to follow me, you, you follow from behind. You don't try to take the lead. We have a history of the church 2,000 years and every time someone brings up something where you and I are ashamed about the history of the church, it's because we didn't get behind Jesus. We tried to get in front of him. We got a great political idea, Jesus. Just follow along. It's going to be so good. Get behind me. I've got a great idea about how I'm going to plan out my life, how I'm going to live my life. Get behind me. I know where that leads. How about you get behind me? Jesus, how about I just live my life and I'll just tag you on? when it's convenient. How about I'll live my life uh, and whenever I have a problem, I'm going to ask all my Christian friends to pray for me. How about that? Get, get behind me. Follow me. This is what my kingdom looks like. This is how it comes. It's not a political play. It's not a fist. It's not a sword, Peter. It is a humble love that unarms a violent, angry world. Guys, we are in an armed, violent, angry world. And a political play is not what is going to change the hearts of humanity. It is a spirit-filled, animated church that humbly loves and pursues the broken. And by the way, that's everybody. No matter what kind of proud, strong face they put on. A political move will not destroy a world bent on power. Only humility can unarm a world like this. And here's the thing, Peter. I must die. And my demand on your life is that you die to your own ambitions, that you die to your own desires, that you die to your own plans. And maybe, Peter, and yes, Peter, you die because you follow me. 
Because anytime you get ahead of me, when you try to take the lead, when the, the church looks more like a successful business, the kingdom does not move forward. It's an illusion. History is full of stories of Christian influence, Christian power, Christian victory. But if the church does not move forward in the name, in the same manner as it was created, it will not bring the kingdom with it. We were created out of vulnerability. We were created out of humility. We were created out of a radical display of love, not strength in the public arena. It's a vulnerable love. It's a forgiving community. It's a fearless community filled with the spirit of the living Christ that will bring the kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. And that's the only way. I'm convinced, as we close things off, I'm convinced that a lot of what we call deconstruction in our day, it comes from a misunderstanding of what it means to follow Jesus. Peter was having a moment of deconstruction in this text. He misunderstood who Jesus was, didn't like where it was going. So how about we don't do that, Jesus? How about I'm not a part of this story anymore? This is not the story I want, Jesus. Don't speak that way. That's not the story I was sold. That's not what I thought a Messiah was. I don't want, do not want to live that anymore. I'll cut myself off from that. I understood that coming to Jesus would mean blessing. And I'll, and I'll just kind of glide to the finish line once I know Jesus. And it would take you about 10 seconds. If you didn't come to church this morning, it would have taken you about 10 seconds to flip a channel and find someone trying to sell you that kind of gospel. That just come to Jesus financially, physically, emotionally, you're just going to glide till he comes back. That's what causes deconstruction. Jesus never promised that kind of life. Jesus made it clear that to follow him would mean struggle. It would mean death to ourself. And in many places, that would not be a metaphor. And this is important because what we believe about Jesus' identity will either strengthen or diminish our resolve to follow him. Much of my struggle in life, much of my struggles to love others well, much of my struggles in life to love my wife well, to love my children well, my ability to follow Christ well, is in reality an unwillingness to follow him and try to take the lead on my own. I want to lead. I don't want to die to my own desires. I want justice. I want justice when my wife doesn't understand the situation, when my kids don't understand the situation. Because I think that if I lose my desires, I do not receive justice. I become less. The gospel says you become more. You become more like Jesus. The gospel says that life comes after death, that resurrection comes after a cross, that life comes after you give it all up. Believe me, when Jesus was resurrected and ascended to heaven, leaving his friends standing on a mountain, looking up, they were not without desire. They were not less human. When they, on that mountaintop, said, I'm going to give my entire life to this mission that he has just given us, and they're filled with the Spirit, the last thing they said was, I got nothing to do now. I got no life. I got no identity. They were more alive than ever. Their desire was more, they were filled with more passion. Their desire was to love more deeply. Their desire was to see life erupt everywhere that they went. And the Acts tells, tells us that they turned communities on their heads. We do not lose ourselves when we take up our cross. We gain ourselves and more. See, the reason Peter's version of God's kingdom would never work for the world, would never work for us personally, is because it's all about gaining something. 
It is, it is a world's mindset of power and recognition. It's performance-based. Jesus says that will never work. If you and I build our lives on somebody loves me or I've got the job I was always looking for, the second we lose that, which we will, we feel like we've lost our identity. There can never be a secure life there. Jesus says, let go of your life and you will find it. Verse 35, he says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. C.S. Lewis says this in, in his great book, Mere Christianity. He says, the more we get to what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. Our real selves are all waiting for us in him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surrounding and natural desires. In fact, what I so proudly call myself becomes merely the meeting place of trains of events, which I never started and I cannot stop. What I call my wishes become merely the desires thrown up by my physical org organism or pumped into me by other men's thoughts. It is when I turn to Christ... When I give myself up to his personality, that I finally begin to have a real personality all of my own. Nevertheless, you must not go to Christ for the sake of a new self. As long as your own personality is what you're bothering about, you are not going to him at all. If Jesus were a king who came with power and put his scepter on our head and pushed it down as Peter wished Jesus would be, we would be compelled to bow to him out of fear. We'd be pushed down before a throne of power. It would look very much like every other power, just ultimately more powerful. But Jesus is a king who went to a cross. So we don't have to submit because we have to. We submit because he went to a cross, and so we can submit to him out of love and out of trust that he loves us more deeply than anyone else possibly could. He's proven it. And die to self-trust, give up control, give up our agenda. As individuals, yes, but also as a church, never before. Never before. And for those of us who've worked in, in, in even this church for a while, and Brett, you've been around for a long time. Janice, you've been in this church for a long time. Never before has the church been so concerned with its image, with, with competing with the world and looking like the world. And then, and then competing with each other over numbers and, and media and, and influence. How is that the church that Jesus came to die for? Jesus, save us from that. Save us from that as individuals. Save us from that as a church. All of that is trying to, to get in front of Jesus. It's not following Jesus. That's what it means to associate with him, to call him King. So I don't know what brings you here today. I don't know what idea you have of who Jesus is and what he's inviting you specifically to this morning. My, my, my inkling, my, my, my thought would be that many of us, because I've done it many times this week, are running ahead of Jesus and saying, Jesus, catch up. I got some ideas for this life. I've got this great story I'm trying to write. If you would just get in there, I'll, I'll, fill, I'll put some notes in and you can be in the margins here. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I've got an idea for that story. Let's take that entire story and let's put it in my larger, much better story. You want your character to have vitality and life and hope and identity and a future? Write your story into my story. Stop trying to tag me on. 
Some of us need to back up and get behind Jesus and where he would be leading us. Some of us need to listen to the voice of Jesus and the, the labels that he would give us. So you don't need to find identity by shows of power. You don't need to find identity when an injustice has been done to you and you make sure you lash out back at that person. Find your identity in the humble king who gave up everything for you, who loves you exactly as you are. Not a future version. He loves you as you are, but loves you so much, he's not going to leave you that way. But through his spirit, he's going to continue to work on you so that you can conform more and more into his image. Let's pray. Jesus, this can be a very difficult um, text to walk through, a, a difficult idea, and we don't want to associate, we, we definitely don't want to associate ourselves with Peter and a misunderstanding of, of who you are as the Messiah and the Savior of all things. But it it takes very little time for us to see if we go on social media or if we go to the bookstore or if we listen to the news that there are many different ideas of what it means to be a Christ follower. And so rather than look to specific denominations, rather than look to different preachers or different authors or even mistakes we've seen in the church, may we focus our eyes on you, the lover of our souls, the deep lover of our souls who loved us before we had anything to offer back to you, who, who, who loves us wholeheartedly with a vulnerable love, so vulnerable you went to a cross. And so we come to you this morning not pressured down by a heavy scepter, not pressured down by law or an edict, but we come bowing before a humble king who went to a cross. And we bow down, not because we're pressed down, we're compelled to drop to our knees and worship you. And so I pray this week that in big and small ways, through your spirit, you would counsel us. You would point out those ways where we've been unwilling to follow you, whether it be at work, whether it be at home, whether it be in our relationships, whether it be at school, where we've been unwilling to follow you in humility and vulnerability and love, and we've demanded justice in the way that we've, we've responded to people. I pray that you would give us strength to be humble, that you would give us strength to forgive, strength to be merciful. We thank you for the cross. We thank you that it is the greatest display of love in all of human history. We thank you that on the cross, you put to death, death itself, so that death no longer has power over us. We pray that we would live in the hope and the identity of the resurrection this day and forevermore. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.